Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In The New Freedom and the Radicals, Woodrow Wilson, Progressive Views of Radicalism and the Origins of Repressive Tolerance, published by Temple University Press in 2015, Jacob Kramer examines how progressivism emerged at a time of critical transformation in American life. Kramer presents a study of Wilsonian-era politics to convey an understanding of the progressives' views on radical America. Jacob Kramer is an associate professor of history at Borough of Manhattan Community College, and I'm so glad his book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you, Zom. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Well, I was uh, a graduate student uh, at Columbia University, and um, I was taking a labor history course, uh, labor in the 20th century with, uh, Joshua Freeman. And, um, I was kind of, uh, I, I hadn't really been exposed to labor history before. And, um, I was kind of surprised to discover the extent to which, uh, the market, you know, which I had been accustomed to thinking of as a more or less abstract concept was, um, kind of a, a historical formation, you know, the way that uh, Professor Freeman taught the course was that wage labor, you know, was not the normal and typical condition of, of workers until the 20th century, really. And it was highly contested. You know, workers were not happy about this. Um, and it was resisted, you know. And so the labor question, whether or not workers would be willing to accept the condition of wage labor and working in factories and so forth, was kind of the uh, themat- the thematic uh sort of a through line of the course. And, um, you know, especially going into the beginning of the 20th century, going into World War One, there were groups that, you know, very explicitly contested the, the growth of wage labor, such as the Industrial Workers of the World, um, which was a, a revolutionary labor union, a syndicalist labor union, um, which sought to overthrow capitalism with a, with a general strike of all workers. But also within uh, what are ordinarily thought of as more conservative labor unions, there was a lot of labor militancy, you know, within American Federation of Labor Unions. And, um, you know, even among workers that weren't necessarily organized into labor unions, there was a lot of strike activity, sometimes very violent, um, often requiring the use of military power to suppress these strikes. Um, all of this to maintain or really to create a market, you know, this market for labor and of other things, you know, transportation, rail, rail networks, uh, you know, coal, all these basic things needed to make the economy go um, until World War One, really. <laughs> I mean, it's contested again after World War One, but during World War One, what happens is the state really kind of steps in and, you know, puts a puts a stop or at least throws its lot in on the side of business, you know, to, to, I mean, in many ways they help workers organize. Um, but the idea of questioning whether or not there is going to be this market or whether or not there's going to be big business really is not up for, is not up for grabs anymore. And I was very struck by that in particular, the suppression that took place during the first world war of these radical labor unions and radical groups, uh, not just the industrial workers of the world, but also socialists um, who, you know, were very viable uh, political, who put forward a very viable political idea that was taken seriously by many, many people um, before the First World War, anarchists, um, all of whom were suppressed and, and, um, you know, put in jail, really, um, or many of whom were put in jail or deported from the country. And so then... um, you know, I was really struck by that. And I wrote a paper about uh, the IWW in particular for Josh Freeman for that course. And I kind of filed that away. But then I came to the Graduate Center for um, at, at the City University 
for my uh, doctoral studies. And um, I, um, I took a course with Judith Stein, uh, which was just the literature survey. And she introduced us to this concept uh, put forward by David Plotke of a kind of, um, you know, there's this, there's this, you're probably familiar with it, but there's this concept within cultural theory of hegemony, where there are certain sort of common sense ideas that, that most people accept. Um, those ideas are contested and they run into crises and so forth, but they change over time. And David Plotke put forward this idea that the common sense, the hegemony kind of shifts in the New Deal era to include union recognition, um, some regulation of uh, business uh, like the Securities and Exchange Commission or federal deposit insurance for banks and things like this, um, and some role for the government in providing for employment, unemployment insurance, uh, employment when there is uh, high unemployment. And he argued that the reason for that was this pressure from groups such as organized labor in particular, the growth of organized labor and the pressure that they create, as well as other concentric circles within that of politicians and intellectuals, some business people sympathetic to it. And so then I, Joshua Freeman was at this time teaching at the graduate center where I was now a student. And I took a research seminar with him and, you know, I said, I'm interested in the IWW. And I read this book by David Plotke. Uh, and he said, oh, well, what you're interested in is what those groups thought about the IWW. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually, I, you know, I wanted to know why this, this hegemon, this new hegemony was limited in the ways that it was, you know, why it was, why it, it was reformist, but it wasn't, you know, sort of challenging the foundations of, of the market or any, or anything like this. I mean, it's not to understate the significance of it. Um, and so then I wrote this research paper in that class um, about, and I, I kind of had to narrow it down as you ordinarily do with a, with a, um, a research paper, but I, I looked at what progressives thought about the IWW during the war, specifically the suppression of the IWW during the war. Um, and so I did a lot of, uh, you know, looking at publications, the New Republic, primary documents um, to try to get at, you know, what their view was. Um, and so then when it came time to write a dissertation, uh, it became a larger project about progressives in general and, and how they thought about radicals in general, not just the IWW. I mean, I focused principally on working class radicalism um, and not just during the war, but throughout the entire first uh, 25 years of the 20th century. So the, the chapter about the war was one chapter. Um, and part of that project was documenting how those views changed because uh, progressives did not always want to suppress the IWW at times, you know, or other radical groups, the socialists, um, or even anarchists, you know, at other times, progressives took a very sympathetic view of them. And, and it's not only that progressives took a very sympathetic view, you know, David Nassau, who's a cultural historian was one of my um, first readers, you know, he said, well, the problem with this project is that you have the progressives over here and the radicals over here. Because in reality, progressives were at times themselves socialists, uh, you know, um, Florence Kelly was a Marxist, you know, certainly before the First World War, Walter Lippmann was in the Socialist Party. Um, so that the, the sort of becoming progressives rather and progressivism becoming a different thing from radicalism or anti-capitalist radicalism is also part of the story, um, as I discovered, you know, and I was constantly reminded of this, you know, just don't, <laughs> you know, to, one of my readers, Thomas Kessner, you know, he was you know, constantly reminding me, you know, well, are you sure that, you know, um, and it, practically everybody I would talk to, you know, people would allege that, well, you know, it's at a, at a, you know, a dinner party for my wife's uh, job, you know, the, 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 the president of the organization said, well, couldn't you just say the progressives were radicals? <laughs> I better think, I better, I better come up with an answer for that, you know, so was, the, the basic answer was that, well, it depends on when that's, that's the art. I mean, I don't know. That's the answer. That's the argument that I that I make is that it depends on when. Yes, at times that was true, um, but I don't think that was always true. I think it. I think it is possible to delineate uh, a boundary that sometimes is quite porous. Uh, to use a term that was suggested to me by Eric Foner, and and at times was uh, you know became solidified.
Right, right. So it's clear, I think listeners will already begin to understand that we're, what you're describing is a rather complex situation, that there are these two categories of progressives and radicals, and that these two categories, as you say, are porous, that they, they're not uh, completely uh, hermetically sealed off from each other, and that people from one group sometimes go to the other group or vice versa, or even if they stay in one group, they have uh, political, ideological, or social contacts with people from the other group, and that the exact configuration of these two groups changes even during the re- relatively short period of time that you're looking at, the 25 years of the first 25 years of the, the 20th century. There's a lot of, movie, of, of, of pieces moving around uh, in terms of the exact political and ideological um, position of the people that you study. Yeah, that, well, that's that's right. Um, there's moving around, but I think it, it's not just in terms of who's in which group so much as that. I, I mean, it's it's, it's partly a, a you know a sort of um, I don't know what the word is for it. You know, it's 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 partly that I don't reveal it, it, it's it's that I don't necessarily say from the beginning. You know how people are going to end up, but. Um, you know, there are people that are ordinarily thought, and part part of what I had to do, you know, for the project was name specifically who I was going to be focused on. Because um, in the original way that I thought of this, it was going to be more of sort of an overarching uh, view with, you know, voices coming in and out here and there. But I was urged for the project to focus on a, a specific cast of characters. And the advantage of doing that is that I could pick people that are ordinarily and uncontroversially thought of as progressives. So, um you know, there aren't many people who are going to quibble that Jane Addams was a progressive, you know, Jane Addams, who was a, a settlement house worker in some ways, sort of like the first social worker, you know, um, she's, uh, you know, very sympathetic to, you know, the, the plight of the poor in the cities and so forth. But her views also change over time. So when I say it's not just a question of who's in which camp, I think the point, you know, what I'm trying to, to establish is that these folks that are ordinarily thought of as progressives, their views aren't always the same. You know, and, and I think the way that, if not historians, I think people more conventionally think of it is that, well, progressive means these five bullet points, you know, um, and that's that's progressivism. Right. Well, um, sp- it, speaking, of which, sp- yeah. speaking of which, if, if, if we could just take a moment here, I know uh, that you're going to say that progressivism changes over time and it's not always clear exactly what How it means. How did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> I read the book, <laughs> but uh, I'm not a mind reader here, folks. I just read the book, but um, but but I do want, for the sake of people who are not really familiar with this material, um, and especially because the term progressivism has changed over time, and that certainly in the contemporary uh, uh, political context, people refer to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, as a progressive, or Bernie Sanders, or whatever, as a progressive. So things could get quite confusing. So for the sake of clarity, um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean when you say progressive, when you use that term in uh, discussing the early 20th century American political context? Well, I get that a little bit. You're you're warning me not to take up the entire time here. Well, you know, it's true that progressive, what is considered progressive changes over time. and, and, And nowadays, progressive tends to mean sort of the the, the leftward bound of the Democratic Party or of the liberal sort of uh, political uh, affiliation. Although I don't think that that's actually a bad way to think of it. Um, it's just that what is, you know, the leftward bound of 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 the, the sort of liberal political affiliation or people who want to change things in the direction of greater, you know, sort of equity or something like this is, is farther left today in many ways, although not in all ways, than it was at that time, you know, it's sort of harder in some ways to become progressive. I mean, especially when it comes to things like uh, civil rights or something like that, or the environment, you know, the environment, I mean, there were, the environment was an issue at that time, but, um, you know, it's, we face a different set of issues. Um, you know, during the thirties, progressive tended to mean sympathetic to communism, you know, um, sort of pro-Soviet. Uh, but in the early 20th century, progressive tended to mean things that it, you know, the basic idea is that you wanted to expand the ability of the state, the capacities of the state to combat, uh, poverty, class conflict, immorality, corruption, things of that nature. Um, so progressives tended to, they sort of 
didn't agree about what to do about those things, but they tended to agree that those things were problems and um, that the that the state needed to act to do something about them. Um, you know, there's a book by Herbert Crowley called The Promise of American Life that kind of lays out a lot of the issues, which is he says, you know, at one time, inequality, in particular among the free population, although he doesn't say that, but, you know, that's who he's talking about, was much less. You know, you could in one lifetime go from, you know, sort of very little to having a decent sort of, uh, uh, you know, way of life for yourself. You know, you could have a farm or you could have a, you know, your own shop uh, if you're a blacksmith or something like this. He says, but with the rise of big business, increasingly that was not the case. You know, either you were born poor or you were born rich. Uh, you know, there's a lot of child labor. There are extremely dangerous working conditions, very dirty cities with disease and so forth. And so the reality is there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity. Um, you know, we were becoming a stratified society. Uh, we tend to think of that as just the way things always were. But there was a lot of attention at the time to the growth of this this stratification that replaced the, you know, because remember, again, wage labor was not the condition of most people until the 20th century. Um, so he thought that, well, what you needed to do, and at the time he was writing, there was this sort of overarching belief that the state should really do very little. Um, and he said there was, he, he spent a lot of time trying to justify the idea of the state taking action. He didn't say what they should do so much in that book as that it should act. And progressives came up with various solutions to this. Um, you know, there was a general opposition to child labor in favor of, uh, you know, restrictions on child labor, compulsory education laws, um, also regulation of housing and sanitation, uh, regulation of factory safety. Um, there's a whole area of progressivism that deals with big business and sort of breaking up the trusts, these kind of overarching organizations that would own uh a significant part of entire industries and sometimes multiple industries, progressives proposed different solutions to this. You know, some wanted the government to kind of legitimate good trusts and do away with bad trusts, Theodore Roosevelt, for instance. Others like Woodrow Wilson and Louis Brandeis wanted to break them up into smaller pieces so they could compete with one another. Um, progressives also tended to favor uh, electoral reform. And in this area, you know, we tend to be less sympathetic or depending, you know, some were in favor of literacy tests. Um, some were in favor of restricting suffrage for African-Americans, um, including which Wilson. Um, others, uh, you know, tended to favor the vote for women. So they in some ways wanted to expand the vote in other ways wanted to restrict the vote. And this is one of the reasons why it's risky to take progressivism as a sort of historical constant, you know, as a, as a, as a trans historical concept, because what was progressive or considered progressive at one time, you know, may not be considered progressive today. And, and it might be considered the opposite. You know, we might, we might think it's, uh, uh, you know, anti-progressive or something like this. Um, right. so they tended to agree about the problems, but not necessarily the solutions. Right. And you, you, you describe, uh, several kinds or categories of progressivism. Um, what do you mean by the term national progressivism and what was, the, um, this group's, uh, uh, what was this group trying to accomplish? Well, that, that's the group that I focus mostly on. I mean, there are, there are progressives who dealt with things like, um, you know, rural electrification in the West and things like this. Um, but I'm dealing mostly with, uh, national policy. So these are progressives who were trying to get the federal government to do things such as break up the trusts or um, grant uh, new rights to uh, labor unions to organize, um, you know, who dealt with, uh, you know, the uh, sort of organization of the economy during World War One, um, you know, trying to find ways to uh, reduce labor conflict or come up with recommendations for how to reduce labor conflict in the long run. Um the, those tend to be, uh, you know, and also, I mean, dealing with during the First World War problems of uh, radical agitation and sort of anti-war sentiment. This is, uh, you know, the propagation of anti-war ideas. This is also something that progressives had to deal with. Um, so by national progressivism, I tend to focus on yeah, national policy. Right. And you mentioned um, earlier that um, your book, rather than looking at just kind of a, a, a generalized pro, um, group of people that you call progressives, you you actually kind of um, uh, uh, focus on uh, a particular set of characters and kind of wa- look at how their views on various 
you know, current events shifted over time. Uh, I wonder if you could introduce the listeners to some of the characters that you focus on in your book. Well, I, I tend to, the, the idea was we wanted some um, coverage, you know, it, it, progressivism was vast. It, it, you know, it incorporated Republicans and Democrats. There were, you know, people all over the country who were involved, but I wanted some sampling, you know, without it being a survey uh, of, you know, important areas of, of at least this one uh, sort of element of progressivism. So for example, um, you know, I mentioned Jane Addams, who was a settlement house worker. I also look at Florence Kelly, who was friends with Jane Addams. They worked together. Um, Florence Kelly was a former Marxist who becomes, you know, a very important uh, sort of advocate for um, factory legislation and uh, for she also lives in settlement houses. Um, and then I deal with sort of um, journalists. So I have uh, Herbert Crowley and Walter Lippmann. Um, they found the New Republic magazine, which becomes a voice for this flavor of progressivism um, and, you know, remains a very influential publication for many years. Um, then I have uh, these sort of labor reformers, uh, Frank Walsh, who was a Kansas City labor lawyer. Uh, he becomes the head of the Commission on Industrial Relations, which was this, this government body appointed by Woodrow Wilson to figure out why there were so many strikes. And during World War One, he's the head of the uh, National uh, the National War Labor Board, which tries to deal with labor unrest and come up with solutions to it to enable the production of what's needed to fight uh, the First World War. Um, and also um, Carlton Parker, who is an investigator for the uh, National War Labor Board and for the uh, Commission on Industrial Relations. Um, he, he's actually, he's, 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 he's not an investigator for the National War Labor Board. He works for the Cantonman's Adjustment Commission, which is you know something that, that uh, is, is trying to settle uh, labor conflicts in the Northwest forests. Uh, but he did. He worked before that for the Commission on Industrial Relations. Um, he was a labor economist. Uh, he had sort of theories about what caused radical uh, agitation, psychological theories of this. Uh, although he was popular among uh, you know labor activists um, as well as progressives. Um, and then there are legal um, progressives like Frederick uh, Felix Frankfurter and Louis Brandeis, um, who are very important scholars of of law as well as, you know, progressive jurisprudence. Louis Brandeis was one of the inventors of the sociological jurisprudence, which is of course now very controversial, um, again, oddly, but, um, he was one of the, you know, the progenitors of the idea that you have to look at what the impact of the law is, not just the words, uh, of the law. And that was very important to the development of factory legislation, hours legislation, um, really any kind of regulation of business, which until that point was just struck down by the courts. Um, and uh, then, of course, Woodrow Wilson, you know, who was president uh, during World War I. Um, many of the people that I'm talking about join the Wilson administration or support it. Um, Walter Lippmann, you know, occupies a position there. Um, Carlton Parker is, I'm sorry, um, George Creel, rather, is another uh person that comes into this, who's actually friends with Frank Walsh, but he becomes the head of the Committee on Public Information during World War I. He was also a Kansas City journalist, but uh, the Committee on Public Information is the U.S. propaganda agency during World War I. Um, and then uh, I also included W.E.B. Du Bois, who is uh, a sociologist uh, and is an advocate for uh, black civil rights. He's actually a supporter of Wilson, oddly, uh, even though Wilson segregates the federal government. Um, and uh, I included Helen Keller um, for the book, um, who was uh, actually Helen Keller was, I mean, she's sort of remembered as a, as a progressive, but she was really out of all of the progressives, perhaps the most consistently radical. She actually joins the IWW. I guess I don't need to say who Helen Keller was because she was, <laughs> as, as Mark Twain said, she's one of the most famous people in the history of the world. But, but so. yeah, well, I think the the, the inclusion of Helen Keller uh, um, was, was interesting to me. Uh, yes, uh, uh, most people know just going for, in America, going to grade school, you learn about Helen Keller as you know a, a sort of survivor hero, whatever, who overcame you know tremendous physical disabilities to be able to sort of function in society. But what I think 
most Americans don't know uh, is that she was also a radical, that she was a political radical. And um, I remember the reading the book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, and he notes that Helen Keller wrote two books. One book is about sort of overcoming her physical disability, and the other one is her you know, radical politics, very socialist politics. And essentially, most Americans know all about the first book and have never heard about the second. So I think in that context, it's interesting that you included it. As, and, and obviously, you're pointing out that she was uh, a socialist intellectual and activist. And that part, I think, is, is, is really unknown to most ordinary Americans. Yeah, I mean, it was unknown to me um, <laughs> until I started. Um, I mean, I didn't know the extent of it until I, I mean, I was asked as part of the revision of the uh, of the dissertation into a book to incorporate more characters. And Helen Keller was one of them. Um, I had come across her when I was doing the dissertation because there was a, a, a member of the IWW, um, Joe Hill, who was convicted of murder under you know questionable uh, circumstances. And she actually wrote to Woodrow Wilson asking him to, to do something uh, about him. It was a state matter, according to Wilson, so he couldn't do anything, although that's sort of questionable. Um, but that's when I first discovered that she was sympathetic uh, to these ideas. But then in writing the book, I found out, yeah, she was uh, not only a socialist, but she she actually, as I said earlier, she joined the IWW. Um, this radical... Uh, um, the syndicalist labor uh, union that uh, wanted to overthrow capitalism. And she talked about how, you know, one of the things she talked about was how, um, you know, it's difficult to comprehend, I think, just how bad uh, working conditions were for unskilled workers in the early 20th century. Um, but she talked about, you know, how children were often blinded, um, in, uh, you know, industrial accidents and things like this. Um, but she was just generally sympathetic to the, you know, to the disadvantaged. Um, and in her lifetime, people accused her or the, those around her of kind of brainwashing her. It's, it's interesting, you know, I mean, she's a very intelligent person, you know, very learned, but, people would be sort of, you know, suspicious of her radical politics. Um, you know, even though radical politics at the time were not uh, that rare, nonetheless, there were allegations that she was kind of, you know, misled uh, into, into these views. Um, she also, yeah, she, she expressed, uh, you know, it's interesting because before the First World War, progressives generally had a very sympathetic view of Germany because Germany had this very expansive welfare state. Um, and she remained sympathetic to Germany even after the U.S. enters the war, which didn't help in terms of her, uh, you know, <laughs> in terms of her political influence. Other progressives kind of dialed that back because they sensed that, you know, this this would harm their ability to achieve any influence. And that's an important element of progressivism: this idea of kind of seeking seeking a way of putting things that will articulate with the current sort of, um, you know, political power establishment. Um, Helen Keller was less determined to do that. I mean, she just kept saying, well, you know, this is, this is the way that things should be. Um, and that itself illustrates something about how progressivism was a little different from radicalism. You know, you don't just keep saying the same thing if that means you're going to get uh, hit over the head. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, Helen Keller herself had what we would consider today a very kind of... Um, um, uh, um, you know, a very thoughtful understanding of the relationship between her uh, overcoming her physical disabilities and 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 class and economics. And she basically said that again, like everyone was sort of um, so uh, impressed with her because she was able to overcome, you know, her, her physical disabilities. And she basically said, yeah, I was able to do that because I came from a very privileged background and my family was able to provide me with, you know, this wonderful, um, um, you know, companion, uh, teacher, helper, whatever, uh, who's really able to, to, to get through to her and, you know, and help her develop. Um, but that, Many other people, even people who have you know fewer physical disabilities, may not be able to overcome them simply because they don't have these kind of economic advantages that I have because of 
you know, the, the class background that I'm coming from. So like she saw this, you know, very clearly the relationship between her family's economic privilege and her own ability to overcome her physical limitations, but, uh, or, or, or disabilities. But basically it seems like the story, the narrative that got developed in America was just, here's this amazing woman. And they kind of chopped away all the, the kind of uh, radical insights that, and, and politics that she promoted. Yeah. Well, and it, it, in other words, uh, makes it a matter of individual achievement rather than, uh, you know, collective, uh, you know, not only in terms of class, but also in terms of getting help from others. Um, it becomes a, you know, purely a matter of individual genius. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, you, um, when I saw that you included W.E.B. Du Bois, this uh, African-American, uh, brilliant uh, scholar, sociologist, activist, um, that you included him as one of the, quote, progressives, I always think of, of, of Du Bois as a socialist, uh, if not later on in life as a communist. Um, and it's interesting that, that that's how you uh, um, see him earlier on in the, the 20th century. He lived a very oh, long time. <laughs> yeah. So like he, the 1970s. So the 1960s. Yeah. 60s. Well, yeah. And actually, I did not include him in the dissertation for that for that very reason. But Du Bois is important, I think, because he illustrates kind of the pressures to, you know, it's true that he was a lifelong socialist, although, um, you know, again, before the war, the distinction between progressivism and socialism was much murkier. You know, I'd, I don't actually... In, in the things that he was writing, uh, that at least I consulted, his, his attitudes toward radicalism, um, it doesn't seem like he was really that far out of step with other progressives before the war. And even during the war, you know, he, he issues this very famous, uh, you know, editorial close ranks, which says, you know, we should support the Wilson administration, you know, and defer civil rights issues until later. Um, and I, I think that he is important for that reason, that he illustrates the pressure to, to kind of go along with this, uh, you know, this uh, with the war effort that that helped to kind of create this distinction between progressivism and radicalism um, during the war. Now, after the war, he is he, he kind of certainly later he becomes more anti-capitalist. And so he continues in a, in a direction that other progressives really don't, um, or at least in a different way. I mean, because there are arguments, you know, that when you get to the new deal period, um, you know, some of these programs are so massive. 1930s. Yeah. That, that, you know, and when you look at people like Sidney, uh, Sidney Hillman and others that who himself is a socialist, there, there are arguments that, you know, that I'm now that I've sort of moved on from the from the progressive period, that I'm sort of forced to grapple with and take a little more seriously, maybe um, that, you know, there are elements of social democracy that that characterize the the 30s. You know, Du Bois moves in a sort of pro-communist direction um, and comes to post-capitalism, you know, more more completely Um than than did people like you know Felix Frankfurt or or, or others, um, so it's uh, you know he he goes in a different direction. But I think that again the the issue is not so much where people are on the spectrum; it's how the whole spectrum moves. And I I think you see that movement even with Du Bois um, as a consequence of the war. Yeah, speaking of the war and Du Bois, I was very and the article that uh, of uh, Du Bois that you just mentioned, I was really surprised. You have a line from the article where Du Bois says uh, essentially to the the African American readers of of the um, of the 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 publication that he's writing for, and he says, uh, first your country, then your rights," meaning that we should really first focus on America winning the war and and all that, and then. Only afterwards will come to deal with, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, the real uh, integration, inclusion, uh, civil rights for African Americans. Um, I think that that might come as a surprise to to some people today that that was the way that that uh, Du Bois, um, the position that he took then during World War Two, during World War One. 
Um, well, I mean, I think that, you know, Du Bois had kind of a, a good way of putting things, but it, um, you know, sort of clear way of putting things. But he was not alone in, in viewing it that way, except that the, the, the one thing I would say is, you know, when he sort of says your country versus your rights, I don't know that that's exactly how most progressives thought of it. I'm not sure that he necessarily meant he didn't mean that your rights were less important. I think he thought that in order to accomplish your rights, we were better off participating in this in this war enthusiastically. Um, and patriotically. But I think for other progressives, um, part of it was that there were some rights that were being advanced by participation in the war um, and some objectives that they had been seeking that were being advanced. Um, So, for example, if you look at somebody like Frank Walsh, he draws up this whole this whole plan with all this testimony and, you know, a dozen volumes of testimony and findings um, about how uh, labor conflict can be reduced. And again, you know, I, I, I try to try to get across in the book just how bad labor problems were. I mean, terrible, you know, rates of infant mortality, just incredibly unsafe and unsanitary conditions, just the, the worst exploitation of workers by drawing entire families and, and their thousands for just a few jobs and then paying them pennies. I mean, it, it just, just really, really bad. You know, it's not, it's hard for us to to uh, think of that unless we read about it, you know, vividly. Um, and he made these recommendations for things like labor recognition and limiting of hours and taxation of inheritances to um, fund public works and uh, public health care, you know, health insurance and unemployment benefits and all these things, many of which get adopted in the 30s. But were sort of impossible to do, you know, in the uh second decade of the 20th century. But then the war happens and some of these things actually can happen. He's made the head of the National War Labor Board. Uh, they investigate 1,100 strikes and, you know, there are there is pressure for businesses to recognize labor unions, um, you know, and union, union leaders thought of this as, you know, a tremendous advance uh, in terms of their rights except they didn't necessarily put it in terms of rights. They tended to put it more in terms of, um, you know, um, in terms of collective uh, achievement, you know, um, you know, Sidney Hillman, you know, said that, you know, Messiah, we hear Messiah's footsteps, it, you know, it, it was, you know, thought to be the accomplishment of these long sought objectives. And um, so at the same time, Frank Walsh and others were aware that there was suppression of radicalism and suppression of freedom of speech. Uh, and they thought, you know, well, you know, there's a limit to what can be done about that right now. Um, and, um, you know, the way Frank Walsh put it to a conscientious objector was that, uh, you know, it's it's sort of, um, you know, it's it, some of these things are just going to be swept away, you know, with, uh, you know, with the tide. And it's it's um, and those weren't the exact words he used, but, you know, something to that effect. Um the emphasis on individual rights becomes more of a focus after the war with the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, and and kind of a re-alignment uh, of progressivism, not as radicalism again, but now as uh, with an emphasis on civil liberties. Um, and a clear distinction, especially during the Red Scare of the 1920s, um, you know, there is now an insistence among progressives that, well, we are not radicals, but we think radicals deserve to have their rights protected. And that's a different way of putting it than was the case before the war when the boundary was somewhat permeable. You know, progressives sometimes overlapped with radicals, both in terms of their official affiliations and in terms of what they would say. Um, du Bois goes in a different direction, you know, after the war. I mean, he he becomes more anti-capitalist. Um, and... Um, he, um, you know, he he increasingly feels that the root of the problem is itself capitalism. You know, before the war, uh, he tended to to blame labor unions for the exclusion of African Americans. After the war, he blames capitalism for segregation. You know, for this, um, you know, he feels that that's really the root of the problem. Is this? Uh, is this? Uh, so it's um, you know, it's he follows a little bit of a different trajectory, but um, but that. But that 
that sort of prioritization of, you know, loyalty during the war is, is quite characteristic of, uh, you know, most of, most of the people in the book, except for Helen Keller, really. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I, I'm curious also, you, you mentioned that um, Louis Brandeis, of course, a famous Jewish lawyer, and uh, eventually... Uh, he was support- Jewish? <laughs> are, are you telling me every Jewish mother when she says, you know, you hey, you know, you could be like Brandeis, you know, she got it wrong. Um, oh, fortunately, uh, I was never told that. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, uh, so um, um, you know, and and of course becomes a Supreme Court justice. Um, so he's included as as one of the progressives, and I, I'm I'm always struck by. Um, by Brandeis, and you mentioned that um, you know one of the the, the the key thing that you're looking at is how the these progressives how they think about labor issues and you know what rights workers should have in in relation to you know the rights of, of business owners and so on and how to uh, resolve conflicts between workers and 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 um, and big business and um, I just find it interesting that that Brandeis famously uh, said once that he was quote the lawyer for the situation that he didn't feel that he was representing the interests of big business or the interests of you know the workers uh, per se but he was a lawyer for the situation he was going to find a way for everyone basically to to get along and and at least get uh, some of what they wanted and I, I always find that particular phrase really fascinating because um, you know with the labor unions the, the there's a famous labor uh, um, uh, union song which side are you on you know and and, and it's uh, talking about the uh, especially the um, the coal, the the um, the unions for the coal miners, and basically saying you're either with the coal miners or you're with you know the owners of the coal mines who are exploiting the workers, but you can't be on both sides. And 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 Brandeis is basically saying, in effect, no, you can. That there's a position where the the interests of the big business and the the labor unions and workers are somehow. Um, you know, could come together, and and I, I I just wonder, you know, what does that say about Brandeis's understanding of labor conflict? That you're able to be on both sides somehow and help both sides, rather than kind of picking one of the sides. If that makes sense. Well, he, I mean, I think he, I think that's true that Brandeis had this view of, um, uh, you know, the public that. Um, you know, he develops in this, uh, you know, the strike and this, this set of strikes in the garment industry um, in 1909, 1910 um, in New York City, something called the Protocol of Peace, um, which has this idea that there are three parties. There's business, there's labor, and then there's the public. And um, I think he viewed himself as a representative of the public. <laughs> and um, that pattern of this what's called tripartitism you know business labor and the public that becomes kind of the quintessential progressive and later liberal um way of dealing with labor conflict um that's recapitulated in the commission on industrial relations in the national war labor board um and ultimately in the national labor relations act i mean first in the national um the uh, national recovery administration uh section 7a um, in the Great Depression and then in the National Labor Relations Act uh, in 1935, where there are these three groups that meet and they're representatives for each. Um, over time, you know, in particular, you know, one of the things, I mean, during the First World War, there's a lot of pressure to go along with the recommendations of the National War Labor Board. But with the National Labor Relations Act, it becomes compulsory for businesses to negotiate with elected representatives from workers. And then when they reach an agreement, it has the power of law behind it. Um, early on, you know, the protocol of peace is sometimes criticized because it puts in place this dispute settlement procedure that is rather cumbersome. And if, you know, it's not settled in the workers' favor, if it's not settled at all, sometimes they went on strike. And Brandeis was very angry about this. You know, if you went on strike, despite this machinery being in place, he felt that you were, you know, a traitor to the protocol or something like that. So it more or less prohibited strikes. 
And so the public, you know, being a third party, you know, there is some question of whether or not that was really, uh, a, you know, in everybody's interest or objective or, you know, in, in, in some feel that it was more like, uh, you know, in many respects, taking the side of business, especially if the if there was no compulsory recognition of unions, which does come with the uh, Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act. Um, but it's a very, very important principle, you know, in American uh, labor history, you know, this idea of, of tripartitism that Brandeis develops. Right. And so you mentioned that that during World War One, um, essentially, there's a lot of pressure on progressives to get in line with the objectives of the of, of Roosevelt, of, of, of Wilson's administration, and not to um, uh, encourage or support um, strikes or labor agitation, because that would make it more difficult for uh, factories to produce the armaments that the American military uh, and its allies needed to carry on the war effort. Um, uh, so then after World War One, we have the Palmer Raids. Uh, what were the Palmer Raids and how did progressives respond to them? Um, well, it's it, it's interesting, you know, I mean, it, during the war, I should just say that it's not just that they want to go along with the efforts of winning the war, or the, um, you know, the idea of promoting democracy or a particular kind of democracy, you know, a particular kind of revolution, which is important to Wilson and also Walter Lippmann. But it's also the progressives put in place these institutions that they wanted to have, and they seem to be threatened by labor conflict, um, especially radical labor conflict, you know, espousing the idea of overthrowing capitalism. During World War I, that that kind of threatens these institutions. And progressives also have kind of a, an instinctive sort of uh, aversion to disorder, they don't, they don't, you know, they like things to be kind of orderly. Um, and that becomes a distinction also between progressives and radicals, because people like Bill Haywood, who was the secretary of the IWW, he was, you know, all in favor of disorder. That was you know, sort of a good thing. Um, but after the war, you know, what you get is, I mean, there's repression during the war of radicals that kind of expands in the post-war period where the uh, attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, who had been a progressive before, he was supposed to child labor, he had good progressive credentials, um, he engages in these very wide raids of suspected uh, radicals and communists. The FBI, you know, goes in, arrest people, uh, often who have no connection to anything other than they're teaching in a, you know, a sort of place of where there were Russian immigrants. Um, this is happening after the Russian Revolution. And so there's a lot of, you know, this sort of paranoia of the, of the spread, the possible spread of revolution. And thousands of people are rounded up and, and, and in many cases, they're rounded up, interrogated, and released. Um, but others are incarcerated or deported. Um, there's a very good book by Chris Capazzola um, called Uncle Sam Wants You, which which documents the extent of this. It's not just the, the FBI or what at this point was called the Bureau of Investigation. But also voluntary groups kind of participate in this and they expel members and they turn them in. Um, so it's just this, this very widespread sort of repression. And I think for progressives, they could see, you know, not only now wasn't there the, the, the sort of um, concern about winning the war because the war's over or about preserving progressive institutions because they had already started to become dismantled or were dismantled altogether. Um, but they could also see that it was just overbroad. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to tolerate repression when it seems to be serving some progressive end and another thing where people seem to be going haywire. And so there's just this, this widespread ridicule of Palmer, um, you know, in the New Republic, you know, um, Florence Kelly writes a letter where she says he should be sent to, you know, she doesn't name him, but she seems to be talking about Palmer. She says it should be sent to Boreal Galuga or some, you know, imaginary place. Um, and I think it's important because on the one hand, I think that Palmer, he tends to be remembered as kind of a right-wing zealot, but he really wasn't. He was himself a progressive before. He was hoping to run for president. He thought it would be popular to do what he's doing. But also because I think he's a little bit of an easy target. You know, anti-radicalism and later anti-communism tends to be associated with this, you know, with this irrational overreach of government uh, suppression. But I think it's important to know that, you know, it wasn't always like that. Um, the suppression, this anti-radicalism, you know, during the war, there were, you know, 
forms of oppression that were quite bad and that were taken seriously, not only by Woodrow Wilson, but by others that I've you know talked about before, or at least tolerated. Um, and that also come back, you know, that don't, that don't really go away. And so, you know, to borrow a term from the, 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 the scholar of fascism, Robert Paxton, um, you know, Palmer becomes a bit of an alibi that comes to represent anti-communism, Palmer, McCarthy, uh, and the other forms of, and, and also for, you know, people like Walter Lippmann, you know, who were, you know, somewhat tolerant of suppression during the war. He becomes kind of a, you know, a, um, not a straw man because he's not fake. He's not imaginary, but, a, you know, an alibi. We're not like that, you know. Um, and, and I think that leaves out, you know, the very real sympathy for uh, for suppression that was an important element of progressivism and which comes back, you know, which is a, was a, which is a thing the state can now do. The clear and present danger doctrine, uh, which was written by, you know, Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes, that decision, um, that becomes, you know, a sort of permanent thing. I mean, now, you know, we're using it uh, for the documents uh, <laughs> that were at uh, Mar-a-Lago. You know, the, the Espionage Act is, is being invoked again. So it's um, for better or worse. Right, right. Well, there's so much more to talk about uh, your book, but we are going to run out of time. So I'll leave you with uh, uh, one last question. Um, what do you hope readers take away from your book? Um. Well, first of all, I hope they take away the book and, and buy it. But, <laughs> so this is not a steal this book, uh, no. you know, uh, Abby Hoffman. Uh, uh, okay, okay. At least we're clear about that. All right. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, the main thing is that I want them to know that, you know, progressivism kind of embraced these ideas of radicalism earlier, but that progressivism wasn't perfect and that it didn't always mean what we want it to have meant, that it's important to grapple with the limitations of progressivism, you know, in terms of suppression of radicalism, in terms of suppression of free expression, in terms of acceptance of segregation. You know, these uh, ideas now tend to be thought of as anti-progressive. Um, but in reality, you know, progressives had both good and bad things that we tend not to associate with progressivism anymore, but that we should remember because they continue to have an influence on the way that the state is configured and the, the way the politics play out uh, in, in the present. Right, right. Well, that's uh, definitely something worth uh, remembering and thinking about. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.